All right, so our text this morning is going to be the, the 14th verse of this first chapter of John's gospel. So verse 14, let me just read it again. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten or as of the only son of the father, full of grace and truth. In all of history, I don't think that there is a more profound statement than the one that we just read together. I mean, if you really, if you really grasp what John is telling us here, remember where we started, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and then he says the Word became flesh. And it's so profound, it's so deep that it's really, I don't think that we could ever ultimately fathom the depths of what's being said here, but it's certainly something that we want to aspire to. It's certainly something that we want to, to give time to think about, and I think it's, it's the perfect time of the year for us to do that. So I just want to focus on this 14th verse, and I want to look at three things. I want to look, first of all, at uh, just the, the word becoming flesh. And secondly, we want to look at what uh, John meant when he said, and we beheld his glory. And then thirdly, uh, we'll look at what, what it means that he was full of grace and truth. So the word became flesh. Let's think about what that really meant. You know, as I was uh, thinking about it as I, I was pondering it over the week, um, I, was, I was thinking, you know, think of the different ways that, that God could have uh, come into the world. Uh, he, didn't, he didn't have to come this way. He didn't have to do things uh, the way he did them. So what are, what are some of the other possibilities? Well, uh, you know, if you think about it, he could have just... I don't know, spoken a human body into existence. And um, that's probably what he did in the Old Testament period and then would appear in the form of a man. You know, there are many, many places in the Old Testament where you find appearances of God. And he, he's appearing in the form of a man. Uh, we're never really told how he did that. How, how it was that he uh, took, a, took a, what, what seemed to be a human body. Uh, the illustration that comes to mind is um, when Jacob was wrestling with that, uh, it says he was wrestling with an angel there, but then it, it also refers to the man that he was wrestling with. But then when you get to the end of the story, you realize he was actually wrestling with God. Jacob says, I have seen God face to face. And so however he did it, God would occasionally take upon himself human form. Uh, but, but we don't know how he did it. So he, he could have done that in regard to coming into the world for the purpose of redemption and so forth. Of course, he could have done this any way he wanted to. So he could have done it that way. Or I was thinking, you know, he could have even, if he wanted to, he could have even fashioned a body out of the dust of the earth, just like he did originally with Adam, 
And then he could have, um, you know, placed himself there within that body. He could have come into the world as a, a full-grown, mature person. And he could have lived, if you think about it, of course, being able to do anything he wanted, you know, he could have lived quite um, separated from us, but yet, you know, engaged with humanity on a certain level, but yet maintained a separation. But the amazing thing is that he did not do that. The amazing thing is what he actually did. So what did he do? Well, in a nutshell, he put himself through the whole human experience. So here's God in eternity past, the word with God, the word was God, but then the word becomes flesh. And, and the decision uh, in, in God, you know, in eternity past was that he would come and he would go through the whole human experience. And so there he was in that, in that embryonic state. The embryo there within the, the womb of Mary is God becoming a man. And he goes from that to a fully developed babe in the womb. So he's, he's going through the, the whole human experience. And then he comes into the world completely vulnerable and, and totally dependent as a newborn would be. So you see, when you start thinking about it like this, it, it becomes even more amazing when you consider that, that, that God the Son, he put himself through this process, not having to do it, but choosing to do it. And undoubtedly, the whole purpose is to just fully and completely identify with us. So he comes into the world as all of us did. He comes in as a helpless babe. His first bed was a feeding trough. So here's a newborn baby, and where do they, where do they place him? They place him in a stone feeding trough, a, a stone trough that would normally be filled with hay and things for the animals to feed on. You know, we're, we're so far removed from the event, and we're so far removed from the cultural situation. We, we have somehow turned this this scene, you know, the nativity scene, we somehow turned this into just this, this beautiful, um, romanticized kind of a, of a scene when the fact of the matter was it was anything but that. It was much, much different than that. So here they take the baby, they put him in the, the feeding trough, and then his first visitors are, listen, his first visitors are sheep herders. Now, we say shepherds, and that's, that's a fine term, but I think, again, the problem is when we talk about shepherds, somehow we've romanticized shepherds. Somehow we think of shepherds as these, oh, the, you know, those shepherds. They were just those wonderful, kind, gentle shepherds that came to visit the little baby Jesus. No, no, these were sheep herders. Now, you say, well, what, what is a sheep herder? Uh, well, think of a cattle herder. Think of a cowboy. You know, think of a rough, tough, dirty, grubby guy. Um, those are the ones who came to visit the little baby. 
Now, any of you who are moms, you know the last thing you're going to want is for somebody like that to be touching your newborn little child. But those were the first visitors. They were the sheep herders. And the family that Jesus came into. His parents, they were from the poorer class. And we know that from numerous things, but, but one of the reasons we know that they were poor is because when they went to make the offering later that was required for the firstborn son, there were, there were two options. You could offer a lamb or you could offer uh, turtle doves. And the, the turtle doves was allowed because God understood that uh, economically, not everybody could afford a lamb. So those who offered the turtle doves were generally considered poor, and that's exactly what was offered for Jesus by his parents. So he comes into uh, this family. He grows up in an ordinary home with younger brothers and sisters. And from uh, an early age, he would find himself working, laboring with his hands, following in the footsteps of who Joseph, who was his foster father. And, and he would have become, uh, he did become a carpenter. And then it wasn't until he was 30 years of age that he transitioned from that and there at 30 years of age. So from, from probably, let's just say, 10 years old till he was 30. So a period of 20 years, Jesus is just living the, this normal life, this obscure life, uh, this, this ordinary family life, and he's, he's working a, a regular job just like anybody else. He's, he's doing uh, manual labor type stuff. But then at the age of 30, we know that he would embark upon an itinerant preaching ministry that would draw uh, tens of thousands of people to follow him. Tens of thousands would follow him some would deeply love and devote themselves to him. One that he invested his life in would betray him. One that he dearly loved would deny him. The rich and the powerful would envy and hate him. Uh, the corrupt rulers of his nation would falsely condemn and kill him. This is what we're talking about when we read this statement, the word became flesh. This is what it's about. He became flesh. He went through the, the human experience, not the human experience that we would all dream of going through, the ideal human experience, where you're born under the best circumstances and you're brought up in, in the best environment and you're educated at the best schools and you're provided with the best, uh, you know, Place, places to live and vacate, all of those kinds of things that so many would, would aspire to. Uh, although those things were certainly an option for him, he did not choose those. But rather, he came in the most common, ordinary fashion. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and the Word became flesh. Dorothy Sayers, uh, a contemporary of uh, C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien, and, and also a, uh, a writer herself. She referred to the gospel as the great 
greatest drama ever staged. This is what she said. She said, it is the tale of the time when God was the underdog and got beaten. When he submitted to the conditions he laid down and became a man like the men he had made. And the men he had made broke him and killed him. This, she said, she's writing this in a book called Letters to a Diminished Church. She said, this is the dogma we find so dull. This terrifying drama of which God is the victim and the hero. She went on to say this, God becoming a man, among other things, means this. That for whatever reason, God chose to make man as he is, limited and suffering and subject to sorrows and death, he, God, had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. Whatever game he is playing with his creation, he has kept his own rules and played fair. He can exact nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. He has himself gone through the whole of human experience from the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money to the worst of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. When he was a man, he played the man. He was born in poverty and died in disgrace and thought it well worthwhile. What an amazing picture of what happened. This is what it means that the word became flesh. He took upon himself a human nature and he went through everything that we would go through and much, much more. So if we just get a hold of that just a little bit, we begin to, to understand uh, the profundity of, of this 14th verse. But that's not all that John tells us here. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Tabernacled among us is, is a more literal translation, or, or pitched his tent among us. And, and the key word there, as I kind of alluded to a minute ago, is it was among us. He didn't live separated from us, although he could have. He could have completely isolated himself. He could have built himself a great fortress, that, an impenetrable fortress. He could have lived in a palace that uh, no one could have ever you know, scaled the walls. No one could have ever accessed him. And he could have just simply um, you know, made pronouncements from uh, the walls of the palace or you know, sent out messengers or whatever. But no, he came and he dwelt among us. But then John says, and we beheld his glory. We beheld his glory. So underneath this outer uh, simple frame, the, this, this humanity, this common humanity, underneath this, there was a glory that John says we beheld. He beheld as one of the followers of Jesus. Let's think about uh, the glory that John beheld. Now, the word glory the, it comes from the Hebrew word, and the, the word uh, kabad is the word, and the word, it means, it means to have weight. When, whenever you read about the glory of God, you're talking about something that's weighty, something that's substantial, something that, that's, that's heavy, but, 
not, not heavy in a bad sense, but, but just you know, substantial is, is the idea, weighty, not trite. We, we saw in Jesus, we beheld in him the glory. What did John see? What was John referring to when he said, we beheld his glory? Well, think of the things that John saw. Think of the things that he recorded for us in his gospel. He was there when Jesus performed his first miracle. He was there when Jesus turned water into wine. And John writes, as Jesus did this, we, it was there that, that we beheld um, his glory as he turned the water into wine. Now, now, some people think, well, you know, turning water into wine, I mean, okay, what, what's that? I mean, that, that just seems like some kind of a trick or something. No, Jesus turned water into wine. What Jesus did there was really an act of creation. Water is not wine. They're, they're two entirely different things. But Jesus takes water and he makes it into wine, which is a, an act of creation. And in this, John would say that we beheld his glory. We saw the, the, the deity. We saw that, that God who was veiled, thinly veiled behind the flesh, broke through there when the water was turned into wine. But then John, of course, would see, as the others did, he would see that the blind were given sight and the lame were enabled to walk and the deaf had their hearing um, given to them and, and the lepers were cleansed. These were the things that Jesus was doing. And the people, as they would, as they would see this, they would marvel and say, we, we've never seen anything like this before. And they would say, Truly, God has visited his people. This is the glory that John would see. And then, of course, they saw when in the midst of a storm, Jesus takes authority over the storm. He stands up in the boat and he commands the wind to cease. And the, the storm on the sea subsides and there's a great calm and the disciples ask one another, who can this be that even the wind and the waves obey him? They beheld his glory when he saw him calm the storm. They beheld his glory when he fed the multitudes with just a handful of uh, bread and fish. And we have two uh, Two events recorded where Jesus fed multitudes of people. On one occasion, he fed 5,000 men, not counting women and children. On another occasion, he fed 4,000 men, not counting women and children. And in both cases, he fed them with just a, a few small fish and a few loaves of bread. And here again, we see a creative miracle taking place. We see him manifesting his glory as the creator providing food for the multitudes. And then we would see him manifesting his glory in the raising of the dead. There are um, at least three resurrection accounts in the Gospels. There's the resurrection of the daughter of Jairus. There's the resurrection of the, um, the, the widow's son in the city of Nain. I love that story as you read it there in Luke. Um, Jesus, he's, he's coming near to the town of Nain, and there's a funeral procession that's taking place. 
And there Jesus sees this woman and he understands that she's a widow and this is her only son and they're taking her son out to bury him. Jesus comes, he stops the procession, he goes over to the coffin, he touches the young man, raises him up, gives him back to his mother, sends him home happily ever after. I love that story. They beheld his glory. Can you imagine what they were thinking when they saw him do that? But then the most detailed resurrection account is the resurrection of Lazarus, where Lazarus is in the tomb, and he's been there four days, and everybody knows that by then his body is decomposing, but Jesus says, roll away the stone. They're saying, oh, no, Lord, that we can't roll away the stone. That, that's not going to be a pleasant experience, and Jesus said, roll away the stone, and then he called with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth, and if you've read the story, you know he comes forth. Uh, bound, uh, hand and foot in grave clothes. Jesus says, loose him. And they loosed him. And then the next thing you know, you find uh, Jesus is sitting at a table dining and Lazarus, who was dead, is there with him. That always blows my mind. And Lazarus, who was dead. <laughs> How do you think about that today? Oh yeah, who was over at dinner last night? Oh, you know, a couple people were there. And you know, what's his name? Who was dead? Well, yeah, he was there too. <laughs> but he's not dead anymore. They beheld his glory. And then, of course, they beheld his glory in the transfiguration. That, that was really what was happening in the transfiguration. And remember, Jesus takes uh, Peter, James, and John. They go up on a high mountain. And there, Jesus is transfigured before them. And they see it, it's that glory that's, that's veiled behind the flesh suddenly breaks through. And they see and he, his, his garments are are shining brighter than the sun in his face. And there Moses and Elijah appear with him. They beheld his glory in that instant. But then here's another one. My son reminded me of this backstage. Remember when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane and they came to arrest him. And they said, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And he said to them, I am. I am. And what happened? As he said, I am, they all fell. They all went backward and fell to the ground. That was the glory. That was the weight. Just And, and notice what Jesus said. Now, in, in our translations, quite often, the, the uh, translators added in italics. You can always, if you find a word in italics, you always know that the translators added that to help with understanding. But in this case, I think they mistakenly added he. So they have it. Jesus said, I am he. But the Greek is actually, I am. Jesus didn't say, I am he. He said, I am I am that I am. He was making that, that proclamation of his deity. And in doing that, these men all fell to the ground helpless. The power of God, the glory of God was manifested. But then the greatest manifestation of his glory was missed at the time because nobody understood this part of it. But the greatest manifestation of his glory was the cross itself. The cross seemed to be the, the defeat. The cross seemed to nullify everything that had previously happened, at least for a, a brief season. They didn't understand 
at the time of the crucifixion, but they would understand later, no, that was the central manifestation of the glory. We beheld his glory when he was there upon the cross, taking upon himself the sin of the entire world, dying in our place in order to reconcile us to God. And so in the cross, we beheld his glory. But then, of course, the resurrection. The resurrection affirmed that his sacrifice on the cross was accepted by God. And so God raised him up in power. And then finally, we have uh, the ascension. Jesus came into the world the way that we all come into the world. He chose that means to become fully human, to go through the full human experience all the way through the process of death, but then resurrection, and now it's time to leave the world. And what does he do? He ascends. He ascends back into heaven. And there they are standing, and they're watching him ascend into heaven. And there, no doubt, they are, uh, this is, John would have had this in mind as well. And we beheld his glory as he ascended back to the Father. And so the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory as of the only begotten son. But then he adds this, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. This is what they, they experienced in Jesus. Jesus came full of grace and truth, full of grace, abounding grace, God's favor toward man, favor that we have not earned. We have not only not earned favor, we have earned wrath. And rather than receiving wrath, God has poured his favor upon us. Remember in the gospel of Luke where the, uh, the angels appear to the shepherds in the field and they're, they're praising God in the highest and they're, they're praising God saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, good will toward man. That was the pronouncement. That was a proclamation of grace. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace. The proclamation of grace is good will toward man. God's will toward man is good. You know, it, it's interesting how sometimes we as Christians have missed, we, we've really missed the, the fullness of his grace. We've, we've maybe grasped it a little bit, and we've, we've uh, you know, appreciated it, but, but I think sometimes we, we miss the fullness of it. And I'll give you one example of how some have done that. Some commentators have taken that passage there in um, Luke, and they've, they've, they've changed the wording slightly. They say, well, you know, it seems like in the Greek uh, you, you could allow for a, a, a change of the wording here. And so they have uh, reinterpreted it to read like this. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace um, toward men of good will. Stop and think about that for a minute. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace toward men of good will. 
what they apparently did not realize they were doing is they were taking away the grace. Because now, the peace is directed not toward everyone. The peace is now directed toward only those who are men of goodwill. What about the, the ill-willed? What about the self-willed? That, that, well, the fact of the matter is that's who we really all are. We are ill-willed. We are self-willed. If it's peace toward men of goodwill, there is no peace. Because there really are no men of goodwill. But these poor guys, they just got it wrong. But apparently for them, the, the concept of, of, of just a free grace that God would just, that his will toward all men would be good. Apparently for some, that's, that's just too much to handle. And, and of course, that was the situation when Jesus came into the world. He was full of grace. And certain people were so thankful for that. Other people were not so happy about it. Other people were actually perturbed by it. They were irritated. They never came right out and said it, but they could have simply said, this guy's got too much grace. We don't like that. That was the position of the Pharisees, wasn't it? But what do we see in Jesus? We see that Jesus, he was full of grace. That's what John says. From Jesus, the fullness of God's grace toward man flows. A.W. Tozer put it beautifully. He said, the penitent will find him, speaking of Jesus, merciful. The self-condemned will find him generous and kind. To the frightened, he is friendly. To the poor in spirit, he is forgiving. To the ignorant, he's considerate. To the weak, he's gentle. To the stranger, he is hospitable. Jesus came full of grace. Full of grace. Not with a little bit of grace. Not with uh, a portion of grace that could be quickly used up. He didn't come to just help those who were already doing pretty good on their own. Those men of uh, goodwill. No, he came with grace. God's undeserved favor. And he was full of it. He was full of it for everybody. And as you, as you follow him again through the gospels, you see that everywhere Jesus went, he dispensed that grace. But he wasn't only full of grace. John said that he was also full of truth. And it's in Jesus that we have the fullness of truth. You know, you can't live without truth. You can't, in just think about that for a moment. If everything that is true, if you just suddenly today decided, I'm going to reject, not just theoretically, but I'm going to reject actually and practically everything that is true, you know what? You would not make it through the day. You wouldn't survive the day. You, you can't live without truth. If you went out and said, you know, this whole traffic system that we've got here, you know, red light, green light, all of that. I mean, what is that? You know, that's not true that red means stop and green means go. That's just somebody, somebody just made that up. There's no truth in that. 
Try that today. We'll be doing your funeral later in the week. You're not going to survive, right? You can't make it. You can't live life without truth. Jesus, he's the truth. He's the embodiment of the truth. He's full of truth. What truth? Well, Jesus is the truth about God. We said this before, but let me say it again. He is the truth about God. You want to know about God? You want to know who God is? You want to know what God is like? You want to know what God thinks? You want to know how he feels? You want to know how he would react in certain circumstances? Well, you've got a beautiful portrait in the Gospels. Jesus is the truth about God, but he's not only the truth about God, he's the truth about man. Jesus is the, the, the prototype. Uh, he is what men were intended to be. He is what God had in mind when he created us. And what do we see in Jesus? What truth do we see about man? We see that he's, he's a man who is living not for himself, but he's living for God. He's living for the glory of God. He's entirely dependent upon God. His whole ambition in life is to bring honor and glory to his father. And that is the truth about man. That's why we were created. That was the intention that God had. And so he's full of truth. And as we look at him, we see this is what God intended for us to be. He's the truth about life. What is life all about? That's a, that's a big philosophical question, right? And it's a question that people have been pondering for thousands of years. What is life all about? What is the meaning of life? Why is there life? What are we doing here? How did we get here? What's our purpose? Where are we headed? And Jesus is the truth about life. And he even tells us himself that he is the life. We read there, in him was life in the first chapter. And so, he's the truth about life. He's the truth about love. What is love? Oh, today we have so many different ways of using the term love and so many applications of it and so many very definitions of it. What, what is the truth about love? Jesus is the truth about love. Greater love is no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. That's what real love is. But it even exceeds that because Jesus didn't only lay down his life for his friends, but God demonstrated his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, even when we were his enemies, Christ died for us, showing us the love of God. He's the truth about love, true love, real love. The only way to understand love is through the person of Christ. And then finally, he's the truth about both time and eternity. He, he's the truth about time. What is this thing that we live in called time? What is this all about? Well, he's, the Bible refers to Jesus as the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. He was there in the beginning before time started. Time, of course, is part of the creation, so he creates time. He's the Lord of time. He's the Lord of history, and all of history, although we wouldn't necessarily know it by looking around us or by uh, listening to authoritative voices in our culture or by reading uh, you know, the past or whatever, we, we wouldn't necessarily know it. But the fact of the matter is the whole, this whole thing about time is all about him. He's the beginning and the end. He's the alpha and the omega. History is truly 
his story. He's the truth about time, and he's the truth about what happens after time, eternity. What happened before time, eternity. What happens after time, eternity. And think about that wonderful prophecy from Micah. That prophecy of where the Messiah would be born. You, Bethlehem, though you're little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one who is to be the ruler in Israel, the one who's going forth is from old, from eternity, or from everlasting. Before anything was, he was there. In the beginning was the word. And after everything is done, Time is finished, he will be there. He's the Alpha, he's the Omega. He is the truth. He's full of truth. He's full of grace. He's full of truth. And these are the things that John highlights in this verse. These are the things that impacted him profoundly. These are the things that he writes down for us. That God, in order to save us, became one of us and went through the entire human experience including all of the negative possibilities. But in that process, he was manifesting the glory of God and showing grace and speaking truth. And so here we are today 2,000 years later, some people will say, well, 2,000 years later, I mean, you know, sometimes we talk about you know, 2,000 years ago, Jesus did this, and people think, well, well, what does that have to do with me? Somebody that lived 2,000 years ago, why do I care what they said or thought or felt? Well, you can dismiss everybody else without a problem, but this is the one person you can't dismiss. Because although he entered into human history 2,000 years ago and although he accomplished these things 2,000 years ago, the wonderful thing is he's still present here today. And the truth that he brought to us is truth that wasn't simply you know, true back at that time, but it's always true. It's true today. And the truth is he came so we could be brought back into a relationship with God. And that's what everything is all about. And Christmas is such a wonderful time, isn't it? Because it's at this time of the year that we're reminded of these things once again. Through all of the distracting elements that aren't bad things, they're enjoyable actually. But sometimes we can just get swept up in all of that. But, but we need to just stop like we're doing today and we need to ponder and we, we need to think, yeah, yeah this time is, is really primarily about this. It's not primarily about the gifts under the tree this year. It's about God's gift that he gave originally to us that was manifested on a tree, a tree made into a cross and it was there that God gave his greatest gift. For God so loved the world that he gave there on the cross his only, his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. That's the great gift.
That's the story of Christmas. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. He came full of grace and truth. And I pray today that that grace that God has freely offered, I pray that it will be received by all. Lord, we thank you for your amazing grace, the grace that would cause you to to condescend to this place that is really for us, although we can talk about it, although we can think about it, we can't really get hold of this, Lord. We, We thank you that you help us in our understanding. You help us uh, through your spirit. And Lord, would you do that today? And for, for those of us that have received you, for those of us that are already enjoying your gift of life and that flow of grace, Lord, may we in these next couple of weeks, may we just continue to, in, in the midst of all the other things we're doing, may we just have these moments where we We ponder these things. We think on these things. And we rejoice over these things. And we praise you because of these things. That's our desire. Lord, help us to do that. And Lord, I would just pray for any today that are with us that have yet to uh, experience your grace, yet to really know your truth. Oh Lord, open their hearts today. May they receive today that gift that you have for them, that gift of life.